Chris and Chris Talk Movies. Hello again, everyone. Uh, welcome back to the podcast. My name is Chris Ferry, and this is my co-host. I'm Chris Huddleston. And I, for one, am very excited to talk about the film today. We watched The Lighthouse. What's a timberman want with being a wiki? Just looking to earn a living. It's like any man. Starting new. On the run. Keeping secrets, are you? No, sir. Why just spill your beans? Okay, so, uh, you know, for those of you, obviously, you can't see the trailer. I recommend you go and watch the trailer because it's a visually stunning film. And that trailer, for one, while the audio and and uh, the, the audio design and the, the music they chose is, is really great, um, you're missing out on the sledgehammer impact of the images that they're cutting together. And there's not a lot of dialogue to explain the whole thing of the movie but uh so go check out the trailer for the lighthouse so uh chris do you have a synopsis for us i do uh the lighthouse from 2019 is the second film from director robert eggers uh, his first movie was the witch that we talked about a good bit last week uh, this one stars robert pattinson and willem dafoe and it's the story of two lighthouse keepers who tried to maintain their sanity whilst living on a remote and mysterious New England island in the 1890s. Aye. Aye. So what'd you think? So, uh, if, if I had not seen a trailer for this and I had, and I knew nothing about this movie and you said to me, Hey, Chris, I want to watch this movie. It's called the lighthouse and it's a period piece about two men in a lighthouse together for a month. One is a, kind of this crusty old guy and a, the other one is a younger guy. And during the day, they do repairs on the lighthouse. They repair the roof. They paint the outside of the lighthouse. And at night, they eat dinner and get drunk. And the older guy farts a lot. And the younger guy masturbates in a, <laughs> a shed with a leaky roof. I would have said, that sounds terrible, but those are all things that happen in the movie, but it's much more than that. There is a, well, first of all, absolutely beautiful, gorgeous black and white cinematography. 
black and white. You just don't see that very often anymore. No, no. And and uh, so I watched this with my brother-in-law and he said he had a good question and he and he, he knew I told him we were going to talk about this on the podcast and he said he said to me why does black and white look so great? Um and especially newer you know movies made in the 90s and and present time the black and white you know you think about something like schindler's list or uh you know obviously this movie it just looks so great and i don't i don't know what i mean that's something that we can talk about i don't really have an answer but sure it black and white it just looks fantastic um you know you have all those elements that i talked about that in a different film maybe would be boring but there's so much more to this you have um First of all, start with the acting. Willem Dafoe, like I said, is this crusty old lighthouse keeper. And Robert Pattinson is this younger guy who's kind of on the run. He had been a logger and now he's working in this lighthouse. And they're there, they're stationed there for a month. And um, the Pattinson slowly goes insane maybe Willem Dafoe does too. It's, it's hard to say for sure. It's hard to say. I think that's yeah. right at the heart of the movie is at first, you're not sure precisely who the movie is about. It seems to follow Pattinson over his shoulder more closely, but it's very much a two hander. Right. Um, we follow Pattinson around during his daily work. So it becomes, you know, a two hander scene, through Patton's point of view. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly Defoe's character as the old sea salt from the very beginning uh, seems somewhat deranged. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, maybe been, been at this too long, been on the open sea too long, been alone in a lighthouse too long, you know, because mm -hmm. he seems a little unhinged. And we assume that Robert Pattinson's character is perfectly even keel and then we begin to peel back the onion and we realize well he's not so even keel uh even though the isolation and the exposure to the other man's tyranny it's a petty tyranny but it is a tyranny starts to wear him down um you start to think oh he's not just going nuts after a couple of weeks on the lighthouse with this guy there's a lot of pressurized history uh, going right. on that starts to come out the more his sanity frays. And there are a bunch of confusing things I hope to talk about during the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. That, yeah. So, so we wonder with the characters, like in the trailer, you hear, you hear, um, the older guys, like how long have we been on this rock? You know, and you can't tell, I couldn't tell in that scene, um, whether he was in earnest or whether he was testing Pattinson or fucking with Pattinson. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. That's a good, point. um, I, 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 it wasn't clear to me. Like, I'm like, Whoa, uh, are we, how did we just do a time jump? Uh, are, 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 is he coming unmoored? Is he checking to see, does he think Pattinson's coming unmoored and he's sort of sounding the waters? Cause that happens a couple of times too, where he's sort of, prods Pattinson to answer questions about how long they've been there. And there's one point where he's like, you just did that. Like, I just explained this to you and you're asking me again, like, right. I mean, do you mm -hmm. remember that? There's a, oh, there's yeah, a yeah. 
whole section of the movie where he seems to sort of be accusing Pattinson of having gone insane. Um, anyway, I feel like I'm getting a little too granular too quickly. I think that the black and white question does deserve just a like, I am not a cinematographer uh, and I haven't been to film school, but I would say that the deliberate choice to make a black and white film, even in Schindler's List, as you mentioned, um, he couldn't resist the red coat, right? Yeah, Colorizing. The, right. And that's, I'm not saying that's a weakness or a flaw. I'm just saying that he has the ability to do it, whereas originally cinema didn't allow you for that. Right. And you have people like Turner colorizing the old black and white films and his argument being like, well, they, if they could have shot in color, they would have. Right. Mm -hmm. And purists saying, you know, you're, you're changing um, miracle on 42nd street, or it's a wonderful life by making it in color. Right. Uh, you're really, it is what it is and you should leave it alone. And I don't particularly, I mean, as long as the black and white, as long as people could still watch it either way, I don't see what colorizing it, uh, but maybe, I don't know, maybe Turner is destroying the, I don't, I don't know. But sure. when you choose to make a black and white movie now, I do think we have a lot more technical controls in terms of just, you can just with twist of a knob or the click of a cursor dial up contrast. And mm -hmm. um, I, I think now we, we have a lot more sophisticated lighting than they probably did in the black and white era. Or if they didn't, uh, have that if they did have that lighting it it wasn't such it was mostly like we need to be able to see him and you know what i mean mm -hmm. and there was there was some art form to it but now it's like if i'm going to make a black and white movie i have a bar to overcome right mm -hmm. uh, it needs to be it needs to be so compellingly black and white that um the viewer shouldn't be able to imagine it in color and that was true for me in this it felt like those old postcards from the 1890s those yeah old, silver nitrate exposures of the shots of the white sky and the black rock and the light you know i mean it was i thought it was hugely effective oh absolutely and the lighting and the way that he framed up the shots paid homage to paid homage to mm -hmm. um the the era of the kind of melodramatic black and whites the sort of there's one one or two places in the film where it's very explicit where um so the old man is sort of going on his he's cursing Robert Pattinson and, and is sort of calling down Neptune and the watery deep. And I mean, it's, it's epic poetry, but he, it's, you know, the camera poetry, is yeah. low exactly. on him and shot up and he's lit from below. So he has this kind of looks like he looks like Poseidon. And, and there's another part in the film where it, Pattinson is, is it's either explicitly he is Poseidon or, or Pattinson is hallucinating that he is, mm -hmm. um, you know? So it's just a, powerhouse visually it really oh, yeah. is it and on paper it would it's would sound like quite a boring film yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i never got bored i we were oh, talking no. about uh gretel and hansel not really being scary you know i got a a couple of little shivers here and there just from the the visual design of it but it didn't really scare me uh, this one scared me i mean there were a sequence in this that i just had um it's nightmare. I mean, yeah, not horror in the sense of um, modern horror where it's some terrible monster, you know, creeping up on you, but a kind of an existential horror mm -hmm. of, um, oh, there's a, the, the, the mermaid, the mermaid when she would open her mouth and it was that sort of half scream, half whale song. 
Oh God! It's jagged teeth. Oh, it's it just chills pouring down my spine, and and Pattinson turns and flees, and you're like, run, run, you know, like, <laughs> like get away, get away. And I thought yeah. it was so great because the mermaid is. It, 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 whenever you see it, it is a combination of uh, intensely uh, alluring sexually, and it's a beautiful woman and exotic and mysterious, and a, a, with a blend of like alien and horrifying and other and, you know, repulsive. And they just, I think every time they bring the mermaid on screen, is a sort of a master balance of that cocktail of the two sides, you know? Mm -hmm. Anyway, I'm talking a lot. Um, no, no, that's fine. With I was gonna so one thing. Well, I was gonna say with the black and white cinematography, I think it automatically in newer films automatically lends kind of a timelessness to the. You think about back to Schindler's List. If he had shot that all in color. I think you would watch it today and think, okay, this was a movie made in the nineties about world war two. Whereas you, you with the black and white, it's almost a time capsule of that period of world war two period. And I feel the same way with this where, you know, if this would have been shot in color, I think it would have lost some of the, the power of that kind of postcard look like you were saying. Yeah. And then also with the acting, you said exactly what what I was going to say with uh now Pattinson is great in this, but Willem Dafoe is just perfect in this role of this crusty old guy and the dialogue that he's delivering as you said, it's like poetry. You know, I mean it's it, it's just he's just the the dialogue is great and the way that he delivers it is just fantastic because he has these, there's a couple of scenes where they're almost like soliloquies where, you know, yeah. he's delivering this kind of flowery in some ways crude, but kind of flowery dialogue. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it's not a surprise to anyone to say Willem Dafoe is a great actor. Uh, and I think an but, under, I think he's an, un, I was thinking about this. I think he's an underrated actor. I think everybody knows he's a great actor, but when, if you just say, if you would just say to somebody, you know, who do you think are the best actors right now of this generation or the, or the, the best actors of the last 20 years? I don't know that, that Willem Dafoe is, somebody that immediately comes to mind to most mm. people, but he's, you know, he's done, you know, stuff like this. And then he's in like Aquaman, you know, he'll do these, right. he, he goes back and forth between big well, budget you, you movies and these small him. films. Right. Oh no, Aquaman no, I'm not, I'm not pays for a year of this. These yeah. Years, I'm not, but, I'm not criticizing him at all, but I'm just saying he's, when do you ever feel like, ah, uh, Willem Dafoe, he really phoned that in. You know what I mean? Right. He, well, even if it's a bad movie, he always is compelling. The Aquaman didn't give him anything to do. Right, but, right. And I, again, I am not a director, but I talk about directing a lot as I perceive it through the film. And I really think that it's a it's a brilliant piece of casting. And mm -hmm. this, this director must have been like, I really see Willem Dafoe in this. He looked so great with the yeah. beard and the, right, and the, the costume department. Perfect. And he nailed that that um, 
I don't know how accurate that accent was to the time or the whatever, but he sounds like the old pirates who would talk like, you know what I mean? He just sounded perfect. Like I well, just the- line and sinker. I bought it and it's a juicy choice and it's a big choice, but 110% it works. You know, the story on, I don't mean to interrupt you, but the story on this director Eggers is with, uh, and I mean, I don't know how accurate this is, but this is what I've read that with the witch and with this, that he's kind of obsessive about, uh, research so i am guessing that you know they speak in this it's the 1890s but they speak in this especially uh defoe in this almost kind of old english um way of speaking and and i i would bet based on what i've just what i've read about this director that you know he was going for very period specific dialogue Mm -hmm. um so i i would I would guess that this is, you know, pretty accurate. And in terms of the performance, like I think in a previous episode, I had talked, well, last episode, I was talking about the kids and how I felt they, they felt, it seemed like they were a little abandoned by a hands-off director. Um, Mm -hmm. And in this one, it feels like you cast a max master actor like Defoe and you spend time, sharing your research with the actor and, you know, pointing them in avenues to do their own research and really highlighting what's important to you in the role and working with them, you know, dialing it in a little bit until Defoe is sort of like, so you're looking for something. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yes, that's it. That's it. That's it. Right. And you get them on track and then you just encourage. And then you just, you know, Mm -hmm. great, great. Well, you know, let's do another take bigger. Give me some more. You know, you go have more fun with it. Go and and just let him off his leash. So you like dial it in and and line it up. And then it's just then you just, you know, stoke that fire and you let a, an actor like that run with it. And it was just so great to watch mm-hmm. that performance. It's really some of my favorite things, stuff I've seen Willem Dafoe do in a long time. Oh, yeah. And I think I think Pattinson does a great job in this movie too. I think he has a much harder um, task in the film because because he's arguably the lead, and the film does not explain precisely, certainly in a in a clear didactic way, what actually happens there. Mm-hmm. There. It starts quite literal, and then it there's a sort of a magical realism that comes into it that is hallucinatory. I mean, I want to talk about what you think is really is really going on, but yeah. the camera becomes an unreliable narrator because we are seeing the world through Pattinson's experience, which makes what Defoe does questionable because you're like well did defoe really do that or is he imagining that defoe did that not to mention that defoe starts off early on drinking and um pattinson resists but then when it clear becomes clear that they're going to be stranded there longer than they think you know it's the night before the ship's going to come and he's like all right and he has a drink and they get blind drunk and then a storm hits the next day and the ship doesn't come and they kind of don't stop drinking and they drink through all of their 
cache of the alcohol, burn through it really, and then they dig up a hidden cache of it and they drink through that and then they start drinking the lamp oil, right? Yeah, which <laughs> was, oh God. So, so you don't know if uh, both of them are going psychotic, if Pattinson was already psychotic, um, if if it's alcoholism or if it's, you know, some sort of a toxic poisoning, some combination of the thereof, or if there is some sort of supernatural element at play. I mean, I guess my interpretation is there isn't really anything overtly supernatural as much as they're in this kind of wild place on the edge of, you know, out in the sea and they're really in Poseidon's domain. And, you know, so you, it's the stuff that legends are spun from, but the, the, the visions of actual Poseidon and the actual mermaid, um, all of the really um, fantastical visions were just that were, were, manifestations of either psychosis or um chemically induced mm -hmm. uh hallucination what what did you think well so there are there are a few different elements that i wanted to talk so i read after i watched this i read several articles that talked about the, the you know that gave interpretations of the film and every article that i read had a different interpretation and even there were quotes from the director and the actors and they kind of had different viewpoints on the movie basically so um when that's things... really interesting i'm sorry to interrupt but that's sure. really interesting to me because i could kind of feel that mm -hmm. by the it... end it didn't feel that pattinson and defoe were in precisely the same movie but i didn't think that that ruined the movie right I it agree. just added to a, you know, it, it added to a sense of confusion that I think was right in line with the kind of gen, general mental decay of the characters. So mm -hmm. anyway, go ahead. So a few things with the the uh, kind of main elements that take place in the movie. One, uh, early on, there is a there are seagulls flying around, and there's a seagull that keeps bothering. Pattinson basically when he's out doing his duties this the seagull is flying around and um you know kind of kind of messing with him and Defoe tells him that it's bad luck to kill a seagull and so Pattinson finally gets fed up with the seagull and in w one of the most violent uh <laughs> animal killings and this is a warning for people if you have a problem with seeing an animal killed on screen this this might not be the movie for you or you might gotta close your eyes or whatever because it's very graphic him beating this this seagull to death so it's almost like that is a bad omen because that's when so kind of a combination of that happening and pattinson starting to drink is when everything starts to unravel yeah um so you have that happening well then you let me, have, i'm sorry oh, to, go ahead to, yeah yeah okay, so, so the warning Defoe gives him is notable, is jarring in the movie because he's like, uh, he has an argument with the, the goal is sort of defiantly blocking his chores. And so he mm -hmm. throws a lump of coal at it or a rock at it. And Defoe sees this happen. He warns him later that night, you know, I saw you sparring with that goal. It's bad, you know, it's bad luck. And Pence is like, ah, oh, get out of here. And he's like, ah, it's bad luck. You know, he really 
kind of loses his cool mm -hmm. and you think and he says that it's the, the the gulls are the souls of departed drowned sailors right so there is this almost biblical certainly mythical uh curse woven into that warning and then every time we see the gull subsequently it has a very pointed um aggression <laughs> towards it we don't even know if it's the same gull but yeah, it, yeah, it, exactly. It, play, it plays as the same goal. Um, and and um, when Pattinson kills it, I mean, I think it's worth describing the scene. It's he. Does it cause him to fall or does he slip and fall or, oh, he's painting the thing and right. He's painting mm -hmm. the lighthouse and Defoe is like sort of messing with him and lowering him down and he slips and he falls. Right. And when he comes to the gull is sort of tearing at his, the knee of his jeans yes. and ripping yeah. his pants. And that's, that's the inciting event, but he ends up, does he grab it by the feet? He gets he a grabs, hold of it. When he ultimately kills it is, I believe it's when, so one of his duties is he has to clean out the cistern. So I, I think that's what happens is he's cleaning it out in the, in the, uh, the gull comes and lands there and he finally gets and it's squawking at him and he finally gets fed up and grabs it by the feet and just starts slamming it against the cistern and, and kills it. I, I yeah. Like swinging it like, um, like you would have, um, you know, like an orange in a sock or something. Yeah. You just sort of wham, 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 and just winding it up. And it's a long extended scene. I don't believe they actually killed a real Oh, no, no, no. There's but, no way they killed an actual seagull, but, but it looks it, real. It looks very seamless, and it just stays on him while he... I was like, that must have been exhausting shooting that scene because he is really just wailing that thing against the bricks until there's nothing left of it but the sort of bloody wings like the body mostly just sort of smashes off as he he just again and again he must hit it 50 times wham 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 and that that night the storm starts to roll in mm -hmm. right so you get this ominous like oh he killed the bird he wasn't supposed to kill it right um Anyway, I interrupted you. So, well, no, no, that's fine. And you brought up a good point there that I I kept thinking about during the movie. You said, you know, that must have been exhausting filming that scene. And I, I was thinking watching this, um, you know, there are being being an actor in in big budget movies. I've always thought there would be um, some really cool things about that. Is you know, they if you're if you're going to do martial arts in a movie or you're going to be a musician and you play the piano or whatever, you know, they get, would get the, they would get somebody who's an expert in those different fields to train them for a few months to, so that they can, you know, be as realistic with it as possible. I've always thought, you know, that would be really fun to, uh, you know, to learn martial arts or, or, you know, play a, guitar or whatever to where you could fake it enough to look good on screen. But I thought with this movie, I thought, I don't know that this would have been very much fun to make, you know, because <laughs> even though he's obviously not out there painting a, a lighthouse all day or cleaning out a cistern or whatever, I mean, you know, I'm sure a lot of it is him uh, moving rocks with a wheelbarrow 
And I, you know, I'm sure they didn't have him loaded up with rocks, but it's just, he's out in the rain and pushing this wheelbarrow around and everything. So I, I just thought, I don't know if this would have been a lot of fun making this movie, you know, because there were definitely some things about it that, that seemed uncomfortable, even it had to have been from an acting standpoint, but it felt very real. Yeah. So it felt watching him sort of push the wheelbarrow. So we ought to say we, so when I say the tyranny of William, Willem Dafoe is in this sort of manual or whatever he signed up for, it's like they're supposed to alternate, right? Because one person needs to tend the light of the lighthouse and make mm -hmm. sure that nothing goes wrong with the running of the lighthouse at night when it is, of course, the most critical for ships to see. Mm -hmm. And they were supposed to alternate that duty. So they take turns on the night shift, as it were. So Willem Dafoe says, no, the light's mine. I'm going to do that the whole time. And he's the sort of senior officer. Right. So what that leaves is that Pattison's character does pretty much everything else. <laughs> Willem mm -hmm. Dafoe makes him do everything else. And in a cruel way, like, hauls that whole oil tank all the way up the circular staircase and up at the top. Defoe says, you know, next time use this. And he's got a little handheld thing that he could have filled up downstairs. He's like, now take that back downstairs. And it, I mean, it, watching him lug that thing up the stairs was making my back hurt. Like, oh, I yeah. was like, oh my God, it, it just feels so real. And the physical labor, uh, you know, at the time you just felt like there aren't machines to do it for you. And everything's kind of steampunk. Like it made you also appreciate the sort of wonder that was a lighthouse at yeah. that time. Like somebody built this thing that needed to be polished and cleaned. And they, they, somebody made that giant glass um, housing for the light up at the top that rotates. And it really did feel like the lighthouse itself, the light and the lamp was this kind of magical piece of technology for the time. And everything else was privies and chamber pots and lumps of coal and, you know, big heavy things of oil and, sh you know, shingles you had to paint and pry off and fix and leaky wooden. Everything else was so subject to the elements out there on that rock and the sea is so corrosive and it you felt it. So when when the gull was like picking at a tear in his pants, it was like it wasn't just like this annoying bird get off of me, but it's like, no, not, you know, the, your pants are a utility, <laughs> you know, it's like, he's yeah. destroying my pants and I may not have five other pairs of pants mm -hmm. or I have to fix these pants and then they're going to have this big mend on them. You know, it's like the, the, the preciousness, you know, you war movies, you talk about the boots and the stealing boots off of the dead soldiers, but you're kind of like, we don't think about our clothing and things as, you know, integral to our not just comfort, but survival. Like, but you really felt this here and that mm -hmm. the drinking was almost self-medicating in a way. It wasn't like they just let's get drunk. It's like this is a really hard life. And yeah, they get blind drunk and they get blind drunk oh, every yeah. night, you know. And I read that, I, I don't know if this is true, because I don't know if this was coming directly from, I, I don't know if this was a quote from him, but I've read that um, to kind of add to the uncomfortable nature of 
things with the movie that Pattinson in a uh, method kind of a way that in one of the scenes where they're drunk, um, he purposely pissed himself so that he was filming the scenes, you know, with pants that he had pissed in. <laughs> so just to add to the realism, I guess of it, you know, um, so, uh, but you, you brought up the thing about, uh, Defoe and, you know, that he is the, um, the only one who can go up and, uh, tend to the actual, um, light part. And that becomes an obsession for Pattinson. He wants to get up there. You know, he argues with him about that he should be able to do that. And, and Defoe says, you know, he's the boss, that it's solely his job. And some of that leads to the weird elements of it where Defoe is up there and um, Pattinson will see him from the outside. And uh, Defoe takes his clothes off. So he's nude in the sort the of ba part. bathing yeah, in the light. Exactly. Yeah. Almost bathing in the light. And at one point, um, so uh, the, the floor that Defoe stands on is, you know, it's kind of this graded floor. So there are holes in the bottom of it. And there's one scene where Pattinson goes up there and he's looking up through the floor and he sees this tentacle moving around. So, um, and then finally, at the end of the movie, uh, Pattinson is able to get up in there with the light and he stares into it. And you don't see what he's seeing, but he has this look of horror. And the, um, the I don't know if the washed out would be the proper term, but it, we get this kind of saturated look. And then also the sound becomes distorted as him, as he's screaming. And I read... Uh, a quote from the director where he was asked what Robert Pattinson sees. And he said, well, and I, you know, this, I read this, so I didn't hear him saying it. So I don't know what his tone is, but he said, well, I didn't want the viewer to see what Pattinson sees because he said, if you would see that, then you would befall the same fate as him. Hmm. So, but to, to briefly kind of touch on what the, the meaning of the movie is. I'll just say, I'll jump in and say, sure. Much more powerful, not for us to see what he saw. Like yeah. nothing you oh, could yeah. present as a director could be as powerful as just, you know, us imagining whatever horror he's beholding. Yeah, ex exactly. But, um, I read one article that I read, they talked a lot about, um, that there's a lot of, Greek mythology in this. So at the very end, uh, the you have Pattinson and he's lying on the rocks and there's a seagull. I don't know if it's supposed to be the same seagull that he killed or if it's another seagull, but that is eating his intestines. Right. And like you Prometheus. know, that's, yeah, exactly like Prometheus. But you also have these clearly, you know, the, uh, the tentacle, stuff that we see that's a i think that's a clear lovecraft sure. um nod so i i you know who well and also so another thing that was brought up is uh i read some quotes from defoe 
And there's a scene in the movie where they get, the two of them get very drunk and they're dancing with each other yeah. and they almost kiss. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Defoe said, and I didn't necessarily, uh, in, until there was a scene where they almost kissed, I, I didn't necessarily uh, feel this way, but Defoe said that he felt that there was a lot of homoeroticism in this. And he said that in the script, um, it actually says that the, as the, the script is written, uh, it says that the lighthouse looks like a giant penis. So Defoe clearly felt that, you know, there was this homoeroticism, homoeroticism. Sure. It's hard for me to say that. Um, and Pattinson said <clears throat> that when he talked to the director about the film, that uh, he said, I did not want to make a movie about a magical lighthouse. I wanted to make a movie about a guy going insane. So I think from, Pattinson from Pattinson's, yeah, Pattinson said that. So I, I think from his point of view, this was just a, about a, a guy going crazy. So I kind of think ultimately, um, I kind of think the, the director just took some different elements that he liked and kind of threw them together. And that, I don't mean that in a derogatory way at all, but I don't necessarily know that there is one um, definitive and definitive theme. And you go, and I'll tell you, you go ahead and say what you think about that. And then I'll tell you what ultimately I, in my opinion, what I think it was really about. Yeah. I, I, all of that makes perfect sense to me because I think it is a movie about a man going insane. And I think it is a movie about two men uh, at the end of the 18th century alone, you know, two men who choose a solitary life, who know they're going to be alone with other men, um, you know, homoeroticism and sailors is not a new trope. Mm -hmm. Um, and homoeroticism and the ancient Greeks is not a new trope. And I think that the ancient Greek mythology of Poseidon and Prometheus is shot through. I would say the only thing is, uh, so I think it's a movie about all of those things. Um, ultimately, it's a movie about two men on a lighthouse and, um, you know, who are marooned. Mm -hmm. And spoiler alert, one kills the other. Uh, one goes mad and kills the other. So I think that's what the movie is about. And I think this movie sort of shows what that looks like with an increasing, as we get more increasingly inside their heads, the heads of the murderer, right? Inside of Pattinson's head. Um, it's interesting because I didn't, you know, Obviously, the lighthouse is a phallic. Freud would say anything. You know, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, but a big <laughs> lighthouse is a big phallic symbol. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, nothing in the shooting of it, you know, it didn't. I never saw the shots of the lighthouse and thought, oh, it's a dick. Yeah. You know, it, there's nothing sexual in the setting of it. What I got from the cinematography was bleak, isolated. Uh, alone uh, I, I, sometimes I think the shooting of it did paint the magic lighthouse picture mm -hmm. right I mean it made the lighthouse seem special and exceptional and remarkable and 
you know, I didn't think that I've been to lighthouses and the, the fact that somehow they cast that giant glass thing, somebody had to blow that, you know? Right. Well, I don't know if you blow that, but it's a mold. Somebody, it's remarkable. It's this huge faceted thing of glass and you look at it and you're like, wow, that's amazing. How did they do that? And it's beautiful and, the way he yes. shoots it. You know? Yes. So you really, and certainly at the end of the 1890s, there's this sort of wonder and magic to it. I don't think it is a magic lighthouse and I don't think he sees, you know, Promethean God fire in the mm -hmm. thing, but I love that they played with when he finally beholds the fire that the gods don't want man to have. It's too much for his mind. And that's the final straw. Mm -hmm. And I love that he comes to see this sort of tyrannical older sea salt who I want to put a pin in the homosexuality for a second, but uh, he starts to, you know, he, he has one of those drunken evenings. He describes Poseidon with his sort of lower half being tentacles or, you know, like a mermaid, but have octopus at the bottom. Like, he, you know, there's a number of different depictions of Defoe that are clearly sort of um, evocative of Poseidon. One, where you literally see the sort of Lovecraftian tentacles writhing in the background as though they are part of him. And another, where he is nude or mostly nude, but, you know, Defoe has got this crazy barrel chest. Like he's a... Apparently he does a lot of yoga and he looks like those yogis. Like he's very mm -hmm. wiry and thin, but he has this big barrel shaped rib cage. And there's a shot of him sort of standing like right on the side of an urn where he's sort of in three quarters view, mostly profile and either nude or mostly nude. And you really just see, and it's clearly with the beard, he's not holding a trident, but you can imagine the trident mm -hmm. in his hand, you know? So they, yeah. They're really painting that picture of the authority figure, like maybe this guy is the god of the sea and he's tormenting me and the gulls are doing his will. And, you know, yeah. um, I think from the, I think if you flip the camera over to the um, Defoe side, he's an uneducated man. He's an old sea salt. He knows what he's doing. He's a bit of a tyrant. Um, he, he, you know, he's a bit of a sadist, like he enjoys and keeping the light to himself, but also not doing the heavy labor and making the other guy squirm. And I think he, I think he is attracted to the other guy, you know, Pattinson's a good looking person. Um, he's a younger man. And, um, and it's, there's a funny, like there's a funny affection to the cruelty, like the need to dominate feels like there's a sexual subversion to that. And that the moment where they almost kiss is pretty clearly being driven by Defoe. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't, I think homosexuality, we have such a contemporary idea of what it means to be gay. Well, okay. So apologies. I will say, I don't, we, I'll say me, but I've learned a lot. Um, you know, I, we grew up in Parkersburg, West Virginia, and it, it was always this sort of opaque thing um, until I lived in San Francisco for a while and lived in New York for the better part of 20, 19 years, 20 years, um, and, and actually made friends who are gay that I realized, oh, you know, people who are gay are, uh, just like all other people. They're all different sure. shapes and sizes and they have different tastes and they have, you know, it's just, they happen to be attracted to people of the same sex. And that doesn't necessarily mean A, B or C. Mm -hmm. And I, I think 
Like when you talk about sailors or samurai or whatever, it defies a more conventional stereotype of what gay might be considered by some viewers in that they don't think of it. It's just, I mean, I think in 1890, it was probably an urge that was unspoken and undiscussed and socially unaccepted, but um, it happened and it was there. And I think, you know, it was sort of, like Brokeback Mountain, certain people is like, oh, so it's just going to be you and another guy out on the mountain for four months. Um, that sounds really lonely and boring. And you think, well, I don't know. It sounds kind of great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? like, um, and I think that it, this was subtle enough in a way that it's just sort of like, it's not just that, uh, I don't know. I, I Now I'm, I'm self-conscious because I don't want to say something offensive that I don't mean to say. I just think that we see like this kiss and it feels fraught to me as a viewer. And then I stop and check myself for a minute and be like, well, is it really so crazy to think that a man who would have chosen to be a married to the sea, as it were, his whole life with other sailors wouldn't have been the kind of person who wanted the company of other men almost exclusively? I mean, he mentions his wife. Yeah, that you know is what does he say? Like twelve Christmases, you know, he missed at sea or something like that, and mm -hmm. which is not to say that the homosexuality at the time was like considered okay, but I don't know. I don't even know where I'm going with this. Does this sure, make any yeah. sense? Yeah, yeah, like it, it makes felt, sense. It felt true to me in the movie, mm -hmm. and it was shocking and a surprise which I think was how Pattinson's character reacted to it right. in the moment. But it, it didn't feel forced or, you know, and I, I think Pattinson even had a moment where he, there was some, you know, there was some, some indication that Pattinson's, there was a curiosity or if not a, an interest, you know, he peeps through the roof and he sort of sees uh, I guess it's him masturbating or he's sort of humping the bed. Right. You know, I mean, there's a couple of times where he sees him nude and and he continues to watch, you know, so there's at least a, if not an interest, there's at least a curiosity mm -hmm. that all felt true to me somehow. Like sure. he was clearly they're both loners. I don't know. I, I just thought it was really. And it's uh, making a big deal. It's not a big deal in the movie, no. but it's there. And it feels like a true thing. And it does definitely ratchet up the pressure between the characters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I did. Honestly, I didn't think about any kind of um, homosexual aspect of it until the kiss. You know, you have or the they they nearly kiss. I think you have, uh, like I said before, um, Pattinson going into the shed, you know, there are more than one scene where the, he, we see him in the shed and it, you know, it's raining and water's coming through and he's masturbating in there. Um, and I, I suppose that could be read as, you know, he's suppressing, uh, some feeling that he has for Defoe, but mm. I, I more took it as just, he's a fairly young guy and he's in a lighthouse for a month and there's no women around, you know, you know, well, to and, me, it was more, it was, it was more the, the nature of 
the nature of the images we saw him thinking about, right? Yeah. The, the latter time he's seen the mermaid, he's imagining the mermaid. He has this little scrimshaw mermaid. And they're fairly violent, right? There's mm -hmm. sort of images of him thrusting a spear, like he's killing her, but also mating with her. Right. You know what I mean? And, and, and none of that, it's not to judge what people imagine. Like people imagine whatever they imagine to get them off. And sometimes it's kind of out of the box stuff. Mm -hmm. But what it, what it broadly, what it kind of painted to me was, especially after Pattinson's character described what had happened to his partner when he was a logger, right? Made me think Pattinson's character might just already be a psychopath, not, not Hannibal Lecter, mm -hmm. but somebody who doesn't really, isn't really capable of empathy, right? And he describes the feeling of like watching the other guy, not helping the other guy out of the way of the logs because mm -hmm. the other guy was a real pain in his ass and then just not feeling anything when he saw the guy swept away by that avalanche of logs and just thinking I need a cigarette and being a little disturbed by realizing that he didn't. It's why, why didn't, why just spill your beans? Like, why did you admit that to me and yourself? Um, and you start to think, oh, maybe he's just a psychopath, you know, and and he is on the run and he's constantly trying to find some other situation where he doesn't not only have to be around other people, but really have to come face to face with some truths about himself. Right. You know, and that's the real pressure. And it doesn't help that the Defoe character is has got a lot going on. It is a difficult guy to spend time with. Um, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I, I just thought it was brilliant how many layers there were to this. And at the end, you're not spoon-fed some answer, right? At the end, what you're actually left with is this magical Promethean imagery of him suffering the fate of having, you know, stolen or 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 gone up to 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 behold the fire of the gods, the forbidden right. light. Um, either way, he's doomed because he has killed the other man. So whether mm -hmm. he's rescued or not, he's either alone on the rock and he's a dead man alone, or, you know, um, a ship comes and they discover he kills him with an ax. <laughs> so it's like, right. it's not a lot of gray area there. Like that's the end for him. Um, right. All that's left is torment. Um, and I just thought it's a beautiful poetic way to end a movie that really loved to play with uh, ambiguity in the imagery. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know where I'm going with some of these thoughts. They just sort of spool out. And I think you're right. I think if you could talk to the director, I, I would, I think that he would probably say there's maybe no right or wrong answer that it's, you know, what the viewer uh, interprets one one theory that I had that I think is a somewhat of a possibility for this is so Willem Dafoe's name is is Tom Thomas and through most of the movie um, so Willem Dafoe is Thomas Wake well through most of the movie when they it's it's a good ways in before they they finally talk about their names. So Robert Pattinson says Thomas his, Wick, right? Wick or Tom, Thomas Wake? Yeah. What did I? What did I say? Thomas Wayne? No, no. Wick, oh. like Wick, like the wick of a candle. That's what oh. I heard. 
Uh, no, it's it, what it says on IMDb is W A K E. Oh, um, that's so different for me because me, okay. I thought Wick like he's literally the he's thing, the, the literal Wick gives the flame. It's like the the light is of consumes him and is of him. Like without him, there isn't. Oh, the okay. Light. Oh, that's so interesting. But it's Wake, so it's much more. Yeah, that's um, what it, that's what it's nautical says. really. <laughs> right, right. So, but. Um, but Pattinson says that his name is Ephraim Winslow. Right. So it's not until later in the movie that one of the scenes when they're both very drunk that he confesses to Willem Dafoe that and you touched on it, that he had he had let this guy die um, or, you know, he didn't. The guy was dying and he didn't help him. Didn't murder him. Yeah, he didn't murder him, but he, but but he allowed him to die. Had a, you could have saved him and didn't. Right. And so he had taken his name and he admits that that his name is actually Tom as well. But instead of being Thomas, he said that he's Tommy. So he's Tommy. Willem Dafoe is Thomas. And I took this as maybe uh, there's one scene where he's up in the he's up atop the lighthouse. I think it's where he finally goes up and he's in there. And I think maybe before he I forget the chronology of this but i think he's fighting with willem dafoe and then dafoe is on the ground and rolls over and he's pattinson it's almost like a uh empire strikes back where um you know luke skywalker farts farts fights vader and you know that's in this movie there's a lot of farting (laughs) yeah there's a lot of farting (laughs) but he cuts open his mask and it's you know it's luke's face in there so i wondered if maybe uh they're the same person that um, Defoe is the older version of him and he has just gone totally insane. Pattinson has, and it's, he's just by himself on the Island. Maybe he, <sighs> maybe Defoe existed and, you know, he killed him and then it's just them, you know, he was some other person. Um, I don't know, but uh, um, you know, the fact that I, I thought that was really interesting that he's, when he, admits this to him he says well my name is tom it's thomas howard and he says he says tommy um so that almost led me to believe that that's a younger version of this you know defoe was the older version and he's the younger version now the fact that when they first go onto the island there's an it's really interesting because they there's the changing of the guard where they pass by the two guys that they're replacing and they don't even speak. They just walk past each other, which I thought I thought was really interesting. So, you know, maybe my theory isn't right because they're there definitely should be that there are two people, two people on the Island. But, but I kind of wondered if it was just, he went insane and it's, it's, uh, (laughs) you know, that they are both the same person. Well, it's definitely a harmonic that plays Mm -hmm. into the whole, you know, it, it doesn't need to be, a yes or a no, or that's it. it. It what's great about this movie is that it evokes a lot of um a lot of different things to think about yeah. in a meaningful way, none of which detract from the film, but also make it fun to do a conversation like this about, you know. Um I mean, I to me it's sort of like, oh, is that what I'm gonna be like when I get am I that now? Is that my destiny? Am I gonna grow up to be mm-hmm. that? Right. Um, I also, when I say, I, I, the other thought I had is like, when I say he's psychotic or a, or a psychopath, 
I'm thinking of it. Do you ever watch Mad Men? I mean, I'm familiar with it, but I never really watched the show. Yeah, okay. So so this won't make a ton of sense to you, but one of the things that's really interesting about Mad Men is the character of Don Draper, right? The John Hamm character. Mm-hmm. Whether or not he's clinically a psychopath, he does the same thing, right? He, he, he takes a, another guy's name. Exactly. He yeah. he I grows up in an, in an extre- Korea, but he, he oh. grows up in an extremely abusive um emotionally abusive and a neglectful thing as a child, right? Mm-hmm. And then he goes off to Korea and it's just him and another guy stationed at a place and he, he can't wait to get out of there. And the other guy in an attack just gets completely blown to smithereens. And sort of all that's left is a bunch of hamburger and his dog tags. And so he takes the dog tags and he switches identities with the guy and comes back and becomes a sort of successful advertising man um but his rise to fame is very cold and fairly soulless and one of the genius things about the series is john ham's ability to remain he's an anti-hero like we root for him and we love we follow don draper and we love don draper but he disregards a lot of people's um (laughs) feelings that you know he hurts a lot of people along the way Mm -hmm. and there's glimmers of his awareness of having done that and not feeling good about that. Like if, if you told Don Draper, he was a monster, he would not want that be, to be true. He doesn't think of himself as a monster. Mm-hmm. And I saw that. So whether or not, you know, a psychiatrist would say, Oh, is he is, or he is not a psychopath. The point is that this character in this movie, um, the Pattinson character demonstrates like really disturbing empathy issues with other people. And I think it disturbs him as well. And so it's enough for me to be like, is this what I'm going to become? Who am I? What do I stand for? Like, am I the kind of person like he doesn't want to tell his history because he is ashamed of it, which Mm -hmm. is an argument that against being, you know, a, a really dangerous violent psychopath but you know then what he does is sort of repeat it he kind of kills his partner like it doesn't Mm -hmm. he can't take it so he kills the other guy and i think the kind of promethean you could also interpret the promethean ending of uh, you know oh god this is who i am like i am not other i can't pretend that was a fluke I deserve this. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Uh, There's just so much to kind of mine and think about. And I think what makes it a really, really terrific movie is that it doesn't force answers on you. Yeah, exactly. You know, if you say what happens in this movie is like two guys go to a lighthouse, uh, they go a little stir crazy, and then they're stranded in a big storm for an undisclosed period of time. And they, you know, they kind of go insane and one of them kills the other. Yeah. And what you get is this much more interesting tapestry of learning about the characters and trying to figure out what it means. And you, you really care. Like I care what it means. Oh yeah. You know, I I like that you can have, it leaves it open for you to have your own interpretation of specific events and scenes and me to us. Like we could experience, we went through the same things, but your takeaways from it might be different than mine. Yeah. I just think that's that's oh, amazing I love that filmmaking. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I think, you know, also 
he may or may not be a psychopath or a sociopath, but he obviously knows that um, that alcohol brings out these these dangerous yes. parts of him because he yes. he does he not it. want to drink. And you know, as soon as he says, you know, Willem Dafoe in the, the first night tries to get him to drink with him, and he says, "Oh no, I don't." You know, so you know, okay, this guy has a drinking problem, and if he starts drinking, things are going to unravel. And finally, it's the last night that they're going to be there and Willem Dafoe. They say, think they think it's the last. You night. think it's the last night, yeah? And he says, "Hey, it's the last night. Let's drink." And then you know, things start to unravel. But we have these scenes that uh, we see more than once that foreshadows his. Um, confession that he's going to make where we see these logs, you know, coming up on coming up towards the shore. And there's one scene yeah. where he just wades out into the water and these logs are all around him. And I don't know if he sees the guy's face that had died then, but I think he very, he has um, when he confesses it to Willem Dafoe, I think he has suppressed that, that, that maybe oh, yeah. he didn't, he doesn't even remember that he's, that what happened because it was so terrible and he probably was drunk, you know, and maybe didn't even remember it. So I think almost, I, I would be shocked if this director is not a Stanley Kubrick fan. So there are even kind of elements of the shining in this. I felt where obviously, mm -hmm. you know, the shining, especially the book is about alcoholism. It was Stephen King, you know, kind of exploring his own alcoholism. So that's a big aspect of it. And you also have the, um, the isolation aspect of it. So that's not to say that, you know, every movie where there's alcoholism and isolation is a nod to the shining, but I think, I think he, you know, was definitely um, at least a little bit making some references there. And so, you know, th if anything, this might just be an exploration of, of alcoholism, you know, well, and the movies don't, I, I don't think that this film hangs the whole thing on that. Mm -mm. Right. And, no, I and, don't either. And it, I feel like it's pretty clear from the shots and the, the sound design, too. You hear it in the trailer we played, but there's the light and then there's a foghorn. That's this huge, crazy, otherworldly sound. It made me think of the tripods in um, Spielberg's version of War of the Worlds, where they have this yeah. sort of like, oh, they do that. Everybody sort of, you know, cowers under. It's like this deafening sound. Um. And so there, and it's an ominous sound. It's a warning sound, you know, and it's the sound of something coming that you need to try and get out of the way of. And, you know, I didn't interpret it as him having forgotten that it happened, but definitely suppressing it. And in these right. nightmares, it's it's haunting him, you know, mm -hmm. it's it's haunting him. Um, God, the mermaid. Oh, man. <laughs> Every time he sees the mermaid, it just terrifies me. And But again, the, the scariest thing about her is her. she doesn't speak, but it, she has this sort of scream that she does that's half whale song. It sounds of the sea, but it's terrifying. Oh, mm -hmm. God. Yeah. Okay, so how? what do you think? Thumbs up, thumbs down? For me, this is absolutely a thumbs up. It this is definitely not a movie for everybody. I mean, I you know there are there are some you know kind of mainstream audiences. Um, just the black and white alone. If you know there are some people that say I don't want to watch a black and white movie, um, and you know the the Pattinson masturbating and having sex with a 
scary mermaid and you know that's going to turn some people off too but um surprisingly i was just looking at the numbers this did 18 million dollars worldwide um it made 10 million dollars in the united states so i mean for again a black and white movie about two guys in a lighthouse that's pretty good um a friend of mine who i feel like has pretty similar um tastes to me i was talking to him about this and and he didn't like it he said it was one of the weirdest movies he'd ever seen which it's weird but i didn't feel like it's so out there that it's inaccessible you right. know um i thought it was great and i mean this director you think about this is his second movie and he made something this um this accomplished you know just from the uh, and it seems to be a, you know, not that any movie is just one person, but this seems to be a, a singular vision in a kind of, um, you know, Kubrick kind of way, I feel, um, that somewhat like last week when we talked um, about Gretel and Hansel, I think this is a director that I hope he continues to make films like this. Um not that, you know, this Marvel might or DC might, you know, snatch him up to make whatever, you know, the next Batman movie or something. But uh, um, even though I didn't love The Witch, I still appreciated it. But this one I just thought was fantastic. I mean, this was for the again, this isn't a movie for everybody, but for the um, the audience that this is for, I I can't imagine people not really liking this i agree i think the specificity of it alone is so great and the performances are great everything we've talked about it's um i mean i guess it's a horror movie because it scared the pants off of me um mm -hmm. that's what my brother-in-law said i said something about it being a horror movie and he goes was that a horror movie and i said well that's what it's you know kind of it's a mystery but i mean there there are definitely um, again, this is one kind of like the Gretel and Hansel that we talked about where somebody that just wants to watch Friday the 13th maybe wouldn't like this because it's going to be too artsy for them. Right. It's not a slasher. It's not a slasher. But, and it's I mean, not a are, thriller. No. But there are, like you said, this just just the the um, the mermaid alone is haunting. Um, so yeah, I, I, this is a horror movie to me. Well, it follows the Pattinson character more closely and his experience mm -hmm. certainly for the whole second half of the film is rage and horror. Like he is either, you know, furious at what he's having to put up with, or he's terrified of some vision he's seeing. And mm -hmm. it really is the portrait of a man going insane. Um, and that's horrifying, and, isn't it? I mean, nobody oh, has yeah. a great time going insane. <laughs> no, no. It, yeah, exactly. And Pattinson, you know, he's still, um, and this seems to happen with every new Batman. There's it. I, I don't think there is anybody that could play Batman that there wouldn't be somebody that wouldn't be upset, you know, say, oh, he's, but um, people were upset when he was cast as the next Batman because they think, He's just the guy from Twilight and he's showing over and over that he's so much more than that. You know, well, you this, liked him in Tenet too, didn't you? I thought he was really good in Tenet. Yeah. Um, Can't wait to so, see that. 
Yeah, and I mean, uh, there's some other films of his that um, more artsy films along this line that I haven't actually seen, but uh, but and and the you know him going head to head with Defoe, and I think we both agreed that um, Defoe's uh, character is a little meatier maybe than the Pattinson character, but still, I mean, he goes head to head with him, and you're not like, oh, you know. This guy is uh, subpar compared to, to Defoe, you know. I feel like the big difference, and I say this as an actor, is, you know, if you if the argument is, I didn't want to make a movie about a magic lighthouse, I wanted to make a movie about a man going insane, the, the actor who is on the magic lighthouse side of the coin has more fun stuff to do. Like, mm-hmm. it's easier to have more fun, even if you're having scary fun with making a movie about a magic lighthouse, then, you know, making a movie about a man going insane is exhausting and it's a lot of hard work and it's ultimately, it's pretty dire. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if you divide if those are Pattinson's words and you divide the movie along those lines, not only is Willem Dafoe a master actor, but he gets the more fun, um, part of the dish. Uh, and he does have fun with it and it's, um, you, you know, could Pattinson, almost think that Pattinson is the straight man in this. Well, way. he is. You know? you know, when 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 Defoe farts in his face, yeah, and Pattinson yeah. gets to do the slow burn. You know, like yeah. oh god, the indignity. But and as dark as this movie is, there are some funny. Oh yeah, there are some funny uh, lines and funny scenes in this. Yeah, yeah. There's not a lot of fun in the second half. It's mostly no. hanging on by one hand. But man, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. I think it's definitely worth a watch. Yeah, this is the, I mean, uh, I, I can't think of anything that I've seen in the last few months or last year that I would say um, was any better than this. I mean, it's yeah. it's highly recommended for me. Yeah. Are we going to, are we going to do uh, the vampire's kiss for next week? Oh yeah. 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 Okay. Excellent. So um chris and chris talk movies at gmail.com if you have anything to say uh otherwise if you're sticking with us why don't we watch the vampire's kiss for next week sticking with our october theme of scary movies on a halloween theme and uh we will talk to you next week